five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on SpaceQ, my guest is Jeff Mamber, CEO of NanoRacks. Jeff has a degree in neuroscience and started his career in media. So how did he become the successful space entrepreneur that he is today? That story and others are part of this candid interview. Welcome, Jeff, to the SpaceQ podcast. Hey, great. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. Before we get uh, into your background in NanoRacks, I understand some of your staff in the Houston area was hit hard by Hurricane Harvey. How are they doing? Well, it's real nice of you to ask. Everybody was hit hard in Houston, not just our shop. Uh, in our uh, shop in Houston, we're right next to the Johnson Space Center. We got about 40, 42 people now, and uh, two of them lost their homes. Uh, four wow. lost cars. Uh, everybody was shaken up. And uh, we decided to start a GoFundMe uh, to take care of uh, some of the folks harder hit and their insurance premiums. And uh, to our surprise, we raised uh, close to 28,000 uh, US dollars. And we really appreciated that and really made a difference in the deductibles for some of the folks. And so people are getting back uh, to normal, but it's, uh, it hits you hard and you realize what's important. I haven't been to Houston in a long time, so how is the city recovering? Is Are, are things proceeding pretty well at this point? Yeah, it's uh, Houston strong signs everywhere. Uh, you go uh, most sections, things are recovered, and then suddenly you come to a block where it's total, you know, desolation. And so uh, uh, it's, a, it's a sign for us uh, in the space business and in the world that uh, Mother Nature can be uh, – uh, pretty strong, and and you just have to um, you know stay focused on uh, family and and uh, and everything else that's important uh, to you. So I appreciate you raising it, and and um, you just go on, you know. Well, that's great, Jeff. All right, so um, since you haven't been on the show before, and. <laughs> Surprisingly, some people haven't heard of NanoRacks, so I'm going to start off with a, a little bit of uh, getting into the back your background, and then and then we'll actually transition into NanoRacks itself. So, okay. uh, a little tidbit that most people don't know is that you actually started in the media side of things. Um, that was a long time ago, but how did you go from media and then transition over to be become a space entrepreneur? I like to say that, you know, when the space shuttle program was really getting going, I believed, as did a lot of us, these uh, early promises of NASA that a new commercialization uh, of a new frontier was beginning. It was a, a entirely new chapter in uh, space exploration. And the uh, space shuttle was a routine access to space. They called it the space truck. And I began writing about it. And I became the go-to writer on space commercialization um, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s for, um, for New York Times and business publications. And then we found a funny thing. We found that very often in those days, NASA was the competitor. And if you had a good idea, then NASA would soon take it up. And we also found out that you could not create a new frontier and a new marketplace 
uh, on the shoulders of the space sh- shuttle, unfortunately and very sadly. It just was not up to being routine, and uh, it was not reliable, and so a lot of things went wrong. Um, but for me personally, I, be, I was a writer, I was doing well, and then um, Wall Street invited me down at Shearson Lehman, American Express, where I helped set up the first space fund on commercial space. We lost, all, we lost $10 million, the whole fund, and for reasons obscure to me, I continued in this industry. And then uh, the last year of the Reagan administration, I was invited down to help set up something uh, called the Office of Space Commerce in our Department of Commerce. And, and that was done because we felt that NASA should not be the sole voice of American industry on space. And in the Reagan administration, there were a couple of people who worked very hard to make NASA and hence our space program just like any other program or agency that we have in the United States government. And so we don't have other agencies that design, develop, and operate and regulate their own hardware and programs as we did up until the shuttle time with NASA. And so during the Reagan era, if I can go into this for a moment. Sure, go ahead. Um, okay, we set up uh, the, uh, in the uh, FAA, FAA uh, we set up the um, uh, launch vehicle, licensing of launch vehicles, because up to then, NASA would fight any effort to have an uh, unmanned launch vehicle or commercial launch vehicle. So we took that out of NASA and we put it into the FAA. And then folks uh, set up for the, to be the voice of industry, the Office of Space Commerce. And I did that for a year. And, uh, and then it was during that time that uh, some new opportunities with Russia opened up and I took those. So it's funny how your career path goes one way and then the other. Now, did you ever expect to be a space entrepreneur? No, never. I was, well, I was fascinated early on. I had a degree in science, neuroscience, and I was fascinated by frontiers. And I was fascinated how in a frontier you have, you need technological innovation, regulatory policy, uh, capital restructuring. I was just fascinated by all that. If it hadn't been space, it probably would have been uh, uh, bioengineering and later internet. And I probably would have done better personally and maybe made more money if I had chosen the others. Um, but I ended up doing space and one thing led to the other after the, um, uh, during the Reagan administration, some friends of mine came in and said, we've secretly negotiated a deal to do pharmaceutical drug research on board the brand new Soviet space station Mir. Could you at Commerce help us get the export license? And I did. And then a year later, when I was back in the private sector, I was invited to see the launch. I met the Russians. They invited me to work with them. I ended up working with the Russians from much of the 90s. And, and ironically, I learned about commercialization of space. I learned about open markets and capitalism in space through the Russians, which is kind of embarrassing <laughs> for me as an American. But that was the situation in the 1990s, um, working with Energia, the giant Russian company that did Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin and the space stations. I learned how to run and operate a commercial space station. And, um, and all that became necessary and was good for what I'm doing now on, on the International Space Station. So you never know. You just got to go with the flow, I suppose. So 
You know, uh, this is after the fall of the Soviet Union. Russia is sort of a bit of a Wild West, lots of commercial stuff trying to take off. How do you compare, if you can, what was going on in the 90s in the in the commercial side of the Russian uh, segment to what's happening today where we're seeing, you know, some issues crop up in, in the Russian space program? I've spent my entire career trying to make space be just another place to do business. And that means different things for different countries and different markets and different societies. In, in America, we are best with open markets, with government providing basic infrastructure and unleashing to the full extent possible the imagination of the entrepreneurs and, and, and business people. And today in the United States, that indeed is what's happening with space and I could not be more proud. What happened in the 90s in Russia was really an imposition of American values of how we do markets onto the Russian people and their society. And if you were in Russia in the 90s, probably you would not have been surprised that Putin came after Yeltsin. And so, you know, they, they sought to privatize and run things in a commercial manner consistent with really American values uh, of democracy, openness, decentralization, and it's not, it didn't work in Russia. I'm not saying I like what Russia's doing today, but what's happening in Russia today with centralization and control from the Kremlin in space is what's happened uh, not only in all the other markets, but throughout most of their recorded history. And I tell my friends in Europe that I'm never going to go to Europe and tell them in Europe, you need to have a, um, uh, a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk or do things the way Nanorax is doing it, because in Europe they do things differently. And the same is true in Canada. I mean, you have a certain way that you run your businesses in Canada. And it's probably a little bit between how we do things in the States and how things are done in Europe. It's just my uh, undisciplined uh, uh, feeling. And so I can't come to you in Canada and say, this is how you should run the, your space exploration program, but I will argue passionately that you need to run your space program the way you run everything else in Canada. And so it's my way of saying to you that I do a lot of international business. Today I'm working in China and I, I'm accepted, I believe, because I understand that space should be and must be just another place to do business, but that does not mean we do business in space in Europe the way we do it in the States, if that makes sense to you. No, that, that makes sense. Okay, so you worked with <clears throat> Energia in the 90s, and then afterwards you created Mircor, uh, yet another commercial venture uh, tied to the Russians. How did that come about, and what were some of the lessons learned from, from that particular venture? Um, I worked about uh, nine years with the Russians. I believe I, I'm the only American to ever work officially for the Russian manned space program. And uh, we both sort of got tired of each other, and uh, I, <laughs> I walked away um, and, uh, about 97, 98. 
and pursued other other uh, activities. And uh, about a year later, the Mir, the Russian space station Mir, was uh, being forced down by the Russian government. They lacked funds, and the Americans at NASA were also pushing to get the uh, Mir space station down. Uh, and uh, there was a group of people, including myself, but uh, who were very concerned because I, to this day, don't believe. Um, you should throw away hardware that's in space. Getting to space is pretty difficult. And once you have something in space, I'm completely committed to reusing it, repurposing it. It may not be shiny, it may not be the latest, but if it's in space, by golly, we should use it. And so about 99, I was approached by a space entrepreneur named Walt Anderson, uh, who wanted to buy the Mir. And he had the capital at that time. Uh, he had a lot of money, and he wanted to buy the Mir to save it. And uh, people forget that his original plan was to launch it into a higher orbit. And we were working with, uh, I was introduced to Walt by Rick Tomlinson, who some of your listeners may know or know of. And uh, one thing led to the other. I told Walt, you cannot buy the Mir. The Russians will not sell it. Um, but you could probably lease it. And because of Walt, I was kind of sucked back into Russia. The Russians trusted me, and I ended up going back to Moscow. I had not worked with them for about two years. And over a very short period of time, because the Mir was scheduled to be uh, pushed into a lower orbit and allowed to be destroyed, we came up with a plan. And finally, Walt just wired the millions of dollars to the Russians, and a progress went off in early 1999. And instead of attaching to the mirror and pushing it down, it docked to the mirror and pushed it up, thereby extending the life, and Mir Corp was born. It was a Dutch company, and uh, we had very little time because our plan was to push the mirror into a higher orbit using tethers, but the U.S. State Department blocked that, and so we had very little time. And in the end, we were, in a commercial sense, unsuccessful. And the uh, Mir was uh, destroyed. However, when the Mir came down, uh, Mir Corp had $179 million in backlog. I had signed with Mark Pr uh, Burnett of uh, Survivor to do a game show with NBC where the winner would go to space. I signed the original space tourist uh, contract with Dennis Tito. Uh, to fly to uh, the Mir. Subsequently, he went with Space Adventures to ISS. We were working with the Murdoch family to do some interesting media. We had um, some interest from the Canadians and uh, some Europeans. And so we proved, in my view at Mir Corp, we proved that a private company could take over a government facility and create value. And during the time I headed up Mir Corp, I spoke with Elon Musk, I spoke with Sir Richard Branson, I spoke to many others, and everybody was intrigued, as was I, at the commercial success we were having. We knew that politically it was doomed. The United States did not want the Mir to continue. They wanted Russia to put all its resources into the emerging International Space Station. But the success we had on a commercial front was an extremely important data point, and I'm very proud of the time uh, that I, I spent working there for. And how long did that company run for? It ran for about uh, two to three years. Near the end, we were kind of on fumes. I tried to do the Lance Bass, if you remember, from NSYNC. Oh, that's right. 
Right. He wanted to go to space, but he was unable to raise the capital. Um, it lasted a few years. We worked with Lori Gover. She, too, wanted to go. She was Astro Mom, and she wanted to go to space, and she also had problems raising capital. Um, really, people think, changing the subject for a moment, people always think it's easy, as did I at the time, but uh, think it's easy to get sponsorship for space. But it's extremely difficult. The market's unproven. Sponsorship is a very conservative market and business model. Um, it works on the ground. They have outlets. And, and to get them to move to space has proved elusive. Um, we just at Nanorax got our first, I'm not ready to announce it publicly, but after eight years, we got our first legitimate corporate sponsor. It's not easy. And so both uh, Lance Bass and Lori Garver and others, their business model was, I will get others to sponsor me. And it just was unable to work out. And uh, Walt, we had the uh, 98, I think it was 1998.com crash, if you remember that. I remember. And, uh, yeah, a lot of investors, the um, young people who were going to put money into Mircorp pulled out, and we could not save the Mir. Okay. That gives our audience a good background on how you got to, uh, in, in part, how you got to where you are today. So let's talk about NanoRacks. Um, you actually didn't come up with the idea of NanoRacks. That was uh, somebody else, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there was a couple of uh, people, uh, Charles Miller and David Andaman, who tried for about a year to come up and have NASA accept the concept of standardized research modules um, that you would put your experiment inside and operate it from a, um, a platform, a powered platform on the space station. And if you're not in this business, you don't realize how revolutionary that is. Um, during the shuttle era, most of the money for research would go to hardware development. Every time you had a project, you would go to somebody chosen by NASA and that company would spend millions of dollars building unique hardware just for you. It would take years, it would be exactly for you. You knew that you would have one flight every five or six years, so you would make darn sure that it worked and it would have lots of redundancies and be heavy and be tried and true and your project would thereby cost millions of dollars. And the idea behind NanoRacks was what happens if you change the business model? And you say, I'm gonna uh, offer little labs, we call them nano labs, and they have circuit boards inside and you can put a video camera and it may be 70% of what you want optimally, but you know what, it's not that expensive, they're pre-built, they've been approved by NASA, and you can go on uh, work inside the nanolamp and do one flight a year if you wish. Unfortunately, the people who had the idea were unable to convince uh, NASA to go forward. They could not get a Space Act agreement. And finally, they came to me and said, hey, Jeff, we know, you know you're post-Russia. You're looking to do something again in the States. Would you help take this on? And I went to NASA, and they certainly knew me. I, I sat for nine years, as I said, on the opposite side of NASA. And I went to folks in headquarters and said, you know, at times you didn't like me. I worked for the Russians, but hey, I worked on Mir. 
And I got this idea from these folks, and I'm willing to devote a few years to see if I can get um, use of the International Space Station at some good levels. And the response from headquarters is, you're exactly right. We didn't always like what you're doing, but you really did amazing things on the mirror, and we'll work with you. So we went forward. We signed the Space Act agreement in about six weeks. It usually takes a year. And uh, we built the first research platform. And by the time we launched it on, I believe it was Space Shuttle 132, um, we already had customers. Now, and so, yeah. who, who was, uh, was, was that uh, Charlie Bolden was the administrator? You know, gosh, uh, yes, Charlie Bolden was administrator. Uh, the one who was instrumental was uh, both um, Bill Gerstemeyer and I think Jason Cruzan, uh, two folks still at headquarters. Um, Mr. Gerstemeyer knew me from uh, my time working on the Russian side. And he said to me, you know, we, we have trouble at NASA. We've done this extraordinary engineering feat in the building of the International Space Station, one of the great projects of the 20th century, and we have trouble getting people to use it. And if you can figure out a way that you can get everyday people, not aerospace contractors, but everyday people to commercially use it, uh, we're willing to grant you a lot of freedoms to do this. And, and I should say that when I first went to, Na to NASA, I said, you know, I don't want your money. I don't want NASA funding. Uh, what I want is uh, the ability to design and operate my own research hardware on the space station and in return market to whom I wish as long as I adhere to the principles of the U.S. National Lab. In other words, no coffee mugs, no trinkets, that sort of thing. And so in, 19, in uh, 2009, it was extremely unusual. When we started Nanoracks, and by that I mean when we signed the Space Act Agreement and opened our door, we had no concept if anybody would pay to use our services on the space station. It was all new. And, and NASA was unsure what legal rights we had because we owned our own hardware. We were the first company in the world to own and market our own hardware on the International Space Station. And so it's been an extraordinary learning curve, not only for myself and for NanoRacks, but for the Na NASA as well. And we've both really evolved from that early time. And the, as the cliche goes, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery. NanoRacks has many competitors now. The concept of standardized hardware inside the space station is not unique. We have competition in uh, the States and Europe. I was in Russia recently, and they're planning to compete against us in Russia. Uh, and, and, and so we've certainly grown the company. If I may sort of jump ahead for a moment, Mark, I'll say that um, to date as we do this, uh, this um, interview, in October of 2017, we've flown 580 payloads to the station in some seven years. We've deployed close to 200 satellites. So we've really proven there's a market. We understand the price points. We've shown different ways to work with NASA on the public-private partnership. And all in all, it's been a fascinating ride. So uh, let's, that, that was a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> a lot of, that was a lot of good history or and information. So, but uh, let's go back to, to 2009 here for a second. So, and this might not be uh, as useful as I thought it would be, but, you know, one of the things, uh, as you may know, is that, you know, I like to uh, encourage people to, to get involved in, in the space sector in whatever capacity uh, and also, uh, you know, become entrepreneurs. So in 2009, when you started the company, uh, how did you initially uh, get the funding to, to, to get the company going? We self-funded. Uh, and we, uh, the first research hardware, the first research platform was built in uh, uh, someone's garage, literally. Uh, we got the pictures to prove it. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley to start in the garage. This was in Houston. And, uh, and um, uh, we did not do our angel round until we were on the space station. And that was a conscious decision on my part. Because I was at a certain point in my career, I was finished, you know, with Mircorp. I didn't want to go into investors and say, I think I can do this. I wanted to go into investors and say, I've done this. I'm on the station. I have my first customers. Um, and so we did an angel round. Uh, we, we like to say our first two investors were MasterCard and uh, Visa. And, um, and then we did an, an angel round. Um, uh, for five hundred thousand, uh, about six months after we were ready on the station. How many rounds of funding have you done since then? Uh, surprisingly little. We're very proud of Nanoracks. That uh, are very unusual for the space business. We pay our employees and we grow our business out of something called revenue, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't make it easy. Um, but we run a very conservative uh, shop here. Uh, and so we've done a Series A uh, for just over $4 million, uh, U.S., and uh, that was done to build our external platform, which sits outside the space station. And uh, it cost us $5 million, and we raised $4 million. Uh, and already we've realized uh, more than $5 million in revenue from it. And uh, we're just uh, finishing now a bridge round led by um, Space Angels. Uh, we can talk about uh, that's to support our airlock project. We can talk about that. And we're gearing up now to do a Series B round. So really in uh, eight years, we're eight years old, we've uh, really only done the ser up to the Series A, and now we've done a bridge round, uh, and we have no debt. Uh, and so uh, we're about to embark now on a period of rapid expansion, and we can talk about that as we move into our own space stations. Um, but up to now, I wanted to prove the business model uh, and, and, build, and build ourselves organically, and that's what we've done. All right. So let, let's talk about one of those things that you just mentioned, which is the, the, the commercial airlock module. What's the purpose of the airlock, uh, and why do it? Um, I have to go back a few years and say that we assumed in, uh, in, uh, the, uh, in starting at NanoRacks that a lot of our revenue would be inside the space station doing these nano labs. And to be frank, that market has not developed the way we thought it would. There's reasons for it. It's only now that we're beginning to see uh, some good growth. 
Uh, and we've, all, we've also taken that expertise and we work with Blue Origin on their new suborbital New Shepherd. Uh, so we're seeing some good things about it now, but it has not developed the way we anticipated in 2009, 2010, and 11. But along the way, we were approached by NASA and said the Japanese have a small satellite deployer that deploys CubeSats. You can deploy three at a time. And uh, would you like to see if you can find a customer for it? And we went to everybody in the States, and nobody was willing to pay to, to deploy from the space station. And to make a long story short, our first customer for the CubeSat deployments was the University of Hanoi in Vietnam. And uh, we got there, we got ISS permission to work with them, and they deployed. And the astronauts took pictures, and the pictures went viral, and everybody realized that space station could be a platform for deploying satellites. Uh, CubeSats, for deploying CubeSats. So we went to NASA and the way we do things, we didn't ask NASA for funding. We said, if we develop our own deployers, will you give us permission to use them? And they said yes. And in nine months, we developed uh, deployers, working with a vendor, and, and um, we used the Japanese airlock under the barter arrangement with NASA. And uh, we have found that there is a market need, a niche, for using a space station for the deployment of satellites. How cool is that? And that's not, so, out, that's not something that you even considered originally. Correct. We had it in our, in our Series A business plan. Once we, we figured we'd uh, deploy, I think it was 10 a year, and probably for the first time in the history of commercial space, we were, the founders were pessimistic on a market projection. Okay, um, and, and so it's not something, though, we anticipated in, in uh, the first when we were doing the angel round. And, and um, to date, we've deployed close to 200 CubeSats through our own deployers, and we have found that there is a unique need to use space stations, and that is really cool to me. I'll give you some examples. We have a growing number of customers that want to keep satellites on orbit, uh, uh, inside the space station, they've done the difficult part, they've gotten to space, you leave them on the space station and you deploy when needed. So instead of the billions we are spending on launch on demand, we are beginning to focus on deploy on demand. We have customers that like the orbit of the space station, 51 degrees, it's, it's lower down. Um, it's not sun synchronous, which is the market that's the, the holy grail, that's the good one. But there are customers who welcome the uh, orbit of the station. We have customers that appreciate that astronauts can add fragile payloads onto the satellite once it is already on the station. So in other words, the, group, the maturity of the market is also showing that you can have reasons that you want to deploy from something other than a rocket ship. So we were satisfied with the uh, using the Japanese airlock. It's the only way to send things out of the uh, space station in terms of cargo. But a couple of things happened. One, our business is growing. Really, that's the principal reason. Is our business is simply growing, both in terms of volume and also in terms of the size of the payloads. So two years ago, we went to NASA. Again, we don't ask for funding. And we said, we'd like to have our own commercial airlock. After about a 14 months of negotiations, NASA uh, accepted, uh, gave us approval, and, we're, and uh, it, the, our own airlock will be the world's first commercial airlock, or we like to call it a gateway to space. 
Um, it will be five times larger than the Japanese airlock. It will be commercially run. We think it will be extremely efficient. Uh, and then, uh, lo and behold, in December, we announced that Boeing was a partner and they're putting in capital. And we could not be more thrilled because Boeing certainly understands space stations. They're the, they're the uh, prime on the American side on International Space Station. We're in manufacture uh, production now in Huntsville, Alabama for the first part of the airlock. We're in discussions today with NASA as a customer coming in to do services as well as certain satellites. It will allow us to have a bigger class of satellites than possible from the Japanese airlock. And the coolest, coolest thing is that at some point in the future, once the airlock is on station, it will stay there for a few years, and then we can remove the airlock and attach it to our own commercial space platform. So we're really, I told NASA this, and they just were, were shocked. We're really in production today for the world's first commercial space station because one day that airlock will be on our own space station. So we're very frugal at, at Nanoracks. We look for the markets, we work with our customers, and the airlock is to expand our existing business in satellite deployment from the International Space Station. And what's the largest size satellite you'll be able to deploy from it? We'll be able to do something upwards of 200 kilograms, what they call microsatellites. And in fact, as we do this, uh, interview uh we're really uh we're getting ready tomorrow to deploy our we call it the caber class k-a-b-e-r uh and um we're about to deploy our first micro satellite from the space station it's a test of brand new hardware and uh, brand new systems uh and uh, that that one that's scheduled to go out tomorrow is about 100 uh, kilograms all right so Tell me, if you can, a little bit about this future space station. Are, are you talking about um, your own Bigelow habitat, or do you have something else up your sleeve? Um, when I look, Nanorax is unique in that we're not in the hardware business. We're in the customer service business. The only reason we are building our own airlock is our customers are asking us, and there's nothing else like it in industry. So this is our not a trend. Which is, okay. our business model is to leverage in space hardware, whether it's the International Space Station, Blue Origin's New Shepard, to, to leverage, whether it was earlier in my career, the Russian Mir Space Station, but you take existing hardware and you leverage it and you increase the utilization of it. When I, we are about to embark on a wonderfully exciting new chapter in space exploration. The International Space Station will be the last gov U.S. government owned and operated space station in low Earth orbit. To me, that is, that is really exciting. And as we look for this new era to come about, I see that my friends like uh, Bigelow, Bob Bigelow, and Suffredini are using the classic business model of let's build something on the ground, launch it, and it will become a commercial module. At Nanorax, we're looking at reusing and repurposing in-space hardware. And NASA's intrigued by this. They selected us to be one of the uh, teams on a program called Next Steps. 
And next steps is looking at commercial habitats, both in low Earth orbit and in deep space, but we're really focused on low Earth orbit. And Nanorax leads a team, we call it Ixion, and it includes uh, Space Systems Loral and the uh, MDA, Canadian MDA, for their robotics, and uh, ULA, and Space Adventures. And we have been uh, funded to do a five-month study of can you repurpose the upper stages of the Atlas V to reuse them uh, to a degree safe enough and efficient enough to allow NASA astronauts and commercial operations. We are just about finished with the five-month study, and from all indications, it all looks good. Um, as you may recall, this is really back to the future. America's first space station, Skylab, was a repurposed upper stage Saturn V. And that was a, what we call a dry lab. It was modified on the ground. We're looking at what's called a wet lab. The second stage goes up filled with fuel, and when you vent it and empty it in the vacuum of space, can you modify it? And what's really amazing to me personally is how much technology has changed since the 1970s. Hello, newsflash. And today we've submitted to NASA, uh, and our final report is in a couple of weeks, but we, we've been working towards showing them that you can remodify a, an in-orbit second stage completely robotically today. One always welcomes astronauts, but we could also modify and repurpose a second stage completely using robotics. And so what I see as the future for us is we fully expect to move forward with very economically efficient platforms in space. After all, we're not paying for the launch. It's riding up as the second stage of an Atlas V. And when it finishes its primary mission, when it's spent the fuel, we will then work to take ownership, take control of it, modify it, and, and we can attach it to the International Space Station, we can have it stand alone, we can do both. Because you're not talking like the other ideas and other things to, uh, for space stations, you're not talking about one for $300 million. You're talking about having one, when an Atlas V goes up, you have a spent second stage. And so for me, not being in the hardware business, being in the customer business, I think the pathway to go is to repurpose in space hardware for commercial space stations. Okay. Now, speaking of, of, of customer side of things, one of the things that you've excelled at is actually that interac interaction with uh, potential customers with governments to make things happen in space. And recently, you actually had a Chinese experiment on the International Space Station. How did that come about? Well, I'm extremely proud of the, uh, the Chinese project. Um, I should back up and say, well, first off, uh, thank you for your comments on customers. We've had customers from 30 nations. And uh, our customers range uh, from high schools that are doing research on the station and the parents pull the money together and they do bake sales and get local um, you know, deal car dealerships to support it, to having European Union Commission, NASA, and other major organizations use our hardware and our services. Um, as your listeners may know, 
um, there is something called in the U.S. Congress called the Wolf Amendment that prohibits NASA from working uh, with China in space. And it bothered me because I do not believe that the United States should be precluded from engaging in civil science and civilian space activities with a nation that's going to be one of the leaders. And especially one where uh, our colleagues and our competitors are already working with. And so uh, today the situation, as you may know, is that the European Space Agency is working with the Chinese space program, the Russians are working with them, uh, many growing list of organizations, Airbus is working with them, but the U.S. is not allowed because of concerns of technology transfer and other concerns on moral issues, which I certainly well understand. Uh, my point, as I said, is one, we should be there, and two, if you want to send a signal to the Chinese, you don't pick an emerging marketplace. You tell them that Walmart can't buy products or Apple can't you know, make their iPhones. Boy, you'll send a signal very rapidly to the Chinese government. But anyway, moving on, I set out two and a half years ago to figure out if there was a way that we would be allowed to have a Chinese organization doing research through NanoRacks on the ISS. And we read the Wolf Amendment, we grew to understand it, we spoke to people who worked for Congressman Wolf, who has since retired. We grew to understand his concerns. And we went to the Obama administration and said, we feel we understand Congressman Wolf's concerns, and we want to try and do something and they, that would honor the Wolf Amendment, and they gave us permission. And I found this organization, the Beijing Institute of Technology, their student, uh, their students and professors, they have a wonderful avenue of research. They've been studying synthetic DNA in space, and they discovered that uh, um, the DNA has abnormalities after being exposed to space for a period of time. Is that due to radiation? Is it due to weightlessness? We, we're not sure, but it certainly has ramifications for, for if we want to travel to Mars and beyond as humans, that something is going on with the DNA. They've flown already. This is their project. They published their results in English uh, language journals. So in other words, they're not funded by the People's Liberation Army, which was a concern to some in Congress. They're a university. They share Western ideals of sharing research and they're sharing their results, and it's a result of interest to us at NASA and in America. And I got the administration approval, and then I went and spoke to the Republicans on the Hill most concerned about working with China. And I found that at the end of the day, their most basic concern, which makes it different than Apple or Walmart, is the transfer of technology. So we engineered a payload where there was no transfer of technology, where the Chinese, in fact, the researchers at Beijing Institute came to the States, assembled everything in the States using American uh, uh, DNA solutions, et cetera. They used our hardware. Um, we put them in the nano lab. And so it met, it, met, it met the spirit of those concerned in Congress about working in the front, high frontier space with China. And consequently, there was a, a feeling that this was a good project to do. And I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of how we did it, and we got support from everybody. And the project took place on the space station, 
and um, the uh, Beijing Institute of Technology team is publishing its first results in a few weeks at a U.S. meeting in Seattle, and then they will publish the results. And I and I so I could not be more proud of all of that. If I could say one more thing, Mark, on this. Uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago, I was at a space conference invited to speak in Wuhan, China. There were 380 attendees there, and I was the only American in the hall. As a superpower, as a leader, and as one that recognizes the importance of space, not only to our country strategically, but to who we are as a nation, this is not permissible. We cannot be barring ourselves from a dialogue. I share the concerns of those about working with China. I understand all nations have a military program, a civil program, a commercial program, and I'm hopeful that I can continue to engage civilian organizations like universities, companies in China, work with the young people uh, on the commercial sector. So that's a long way to describe the, the uh, Beijing project. Okay. Speaking of um, the commercial side, and uh, you talked about creating value. You also talked about uh, some of the funding that you had recently. You, 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 like you said, you had the bridge loan from uh, that was led by uh, Space Angels, uh, and now you're talking about uh, doing a Series B. How much do you want to raise with that Series B, and 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 what's that? Is that going to go towards the uh, Atlas V project or something else? Yes, um, half of the Series B will be used to um, to uh, build up our expertise in the reuse of in-space hardware, uh, including upper stages of the Atlas V. And so um, we need capital to uh, go forward with that project. And we also need to uh, uh, build the airlock. And so the bridge uh, loan with Space Angels was to keep us on track. Uh, we had to order. We have to order some uh, more parts, long lead items, and the Series B. I think we're going to begin in earnest in January. Uh, we had started the Series B a few months ago, and the advice we got from the investment community is come back to us when you have your first contracts for use of the airlock. So I think we'll be signing our first uh, commercial contracts to use the airlock this year, this uh, quarter of uh, 2017. And once we have those, we'll go back to those potential investors and look to do the Series B. Amount uncertain, but um, you know we need to raise. It will be a large amount for us. Um, you know, 10 to 15 million uh, U.S. Uh, I'm not sure the exact amount yet. I'm not being coy. Uh, again, we're frugal. We raise what we need. And so I'm happy to say the cost of the airlock seems to be coming down as we have more innovative methods and we're, we're understanding the process better. And so, yeah, for us, it's uh, focusing now on the airlock and focusing on the commercial space station. I just have a couple quick questions. You're doing the uh, the Space Angels uh, funding. You got the Series B that you're going to be going ahead with. Are, are you considering down the road going public? Well, you know, uh, it, it certainly is an exciting time in the industry. 
And um, of course, I note, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I note a lot of companies are delaying going public. There may be value in staying private. Uh, there may be value as we become more and more international to going public. Uh, and so for me right now, I'm focused on, uh, uh, you know, quarter to quarter, uh, growing the company and, and, and making sure I, I keep my shareholders uh, happy that we're on the right pathway. Uh, so I'm not sure where we'll be in several years, whether we'll be acquiring smaller companies or we'll be acquired or we'll be going public. I do know that we seem to have found a sweet spot in the industry. I do know that we're a very uh, conservative investment if you want to get involved in space because we have myriad revenue streams and customers all over the world. So I'm not sure what the future will, will be. but. Um, uh, I'll let you know when I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, last uh, last two questions. Um, uh, do you have any advice for anybody who wants to start a, a new space company today? Yes, and I've been trying to help. Uh, we get a lot of people who come to NanoRacks, who come to me personally, asking for advice. Um, of course, it depends on the project. Um, there are so many younger people who want to build launch vehicles today, and I tell them all they're crazy, but maybe I'm wrong, who knows. Uh, um, but uh, we were in Australia recently for the IAC conference, the big space conference held in a different spot in the world every year, and we had three new companies made up of young people come up to our booth and say, we'd like to work with Nanoracks, we're going to build our own rocket. And so, my Lord, I think in the next few years, we'll have 70 to 80 launch vehicles, which is great for us. We're in the destination and in space services business, but I don't know if it's great for the rocket business. So, I guess quickly, I say, I say to the people who are starting off today, treat this like any other business. Find a niche. Find something that, that has uh, the least amount of uh, difficulty to achieve. You're not Jeff Bezos. You know, you can't pour billions literally into this. Like in the computer industry, find something that complements what Apple is doing. You know, find something that maybe leverages what Facebook is uh, sort of leaning towards and may want to get involved with. So look at what the people in the industry are already doing and figure out how you can um, leverage what they're already doing and offer that to them as a service or as a partner. All right. Last question. Um, Canada. Uh, are you doing anything in Canada, with Canada, with Canadian companies, with the government that you can talk about? Yes, I'll say that, um, okay, um, we've been in discussions with the Canadian Space Agency for some time about how we can work together. Uh, we, we are really hopeful that we'll have some announcements uh, in the near future about doing some in-space services for Canada, uh, and that's on the government level. I'm also very intrigued by this maritime launch services effort uh, uh, to put a Ukrainian rocket uh, and have it launched from Nova Scotia. Uh, I am not, uh, Nanorax is not working with them, uh, at least at this time, but I think that uh, the Ukrainians with their proven rocket technology uh, and Canada, that area, Nova Scotia has, has been cited before as a good location for commercial launches. I'm extremely interested to see uh, if in the next uh, two, three years, 
uh, Canada may emerge as a major uh, uh, launch-faring uh, nation. Um, and, and so we'll see what the next few years brings on that. But we're, we're, we're developing, at the same time, our relations with, with the Canadian Space Agency as well. Okay. I'll keep you posted on the Maritime Launch Services uh, uh, activities as I become aware of them. I'm hopefully yeah. I'll have an update on that uh, in the next couple of weeks on uh, on our SpaceQ website. All right, Great. Jeff, uh, I, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, for to talking to me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I think uh, your company is doing some very innovative things and uh, trying to stay on the cutting edge, but at the same time, uh, you know, have a real business model. So uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what you do in the future, and hopefully you'll be a guest uh, again at some point. Well, I appreciate you inviting me, Mark, and also I appreciate everything that you do. As you said, I started in the media business, and I know the importance of uh, what you're doing on your different uh, platforms, and so uh, we need it now. And we need this sort of service, so thanks very much, and I look forward to next time I'm on. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at The Space Q. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher, and if we're connected, you'll get SpaceQ articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing review if you're so inclined. Inclined.